0: Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Thank you, Antonia, for that amazing testimony, and thank you, choir and worship team, for leading us in worship. And uh, I don't know about you, but I did my share of weeping down there, and that was my third service. And... uh, So I've shed some tears uh, this weekend already just in tremendous joy over what Christ has done for us. It's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. Guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, "'Do not be afraid.'" For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. The Bible claims that Jesus arose and our faith pivots on that truth. Right there. That's where it pivots. The Bible claims that in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still dead in your sins. If he did not rise from the dead, you and I have no hope of life after death. We have no hope for answered prayers, no power to change our lives, as Antonia was talking about. All your work, all your giving, all your sacrifice, all your labor for God is in vain. Then this is just one big bad joke. The worst hoax foisted on mankind, and Jesus is the world's greatest deceiver and liar. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then we are right about everything. We're just going to look for a few moments at the evidence of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and then we're going to talk about the importance of the resurrection. So the first question, did Jesus actually live? Well, virtually no historians today, Christian or non-Christian, doubt the existence, never mind the execution of Jesus by the Romans. The evidence is just too overwhelming. For example, Josephus, a non-Christian Jewish historian, a contemporary of Christ, he told us much about the Jewish wars. And historians today consider Josephus to be extremely reliable, and he referred to Jesus in his writings as the one who claimed to be the Christ. And even said that he was martyred. Tacitus, also a non-Christian, most important Roman first century historian, told us much of what we know about Rome in the first century, and he also spoke about Jesus and his crucifixion. And then there's the Talmud, a very important Jewish religious book, And it talks about the existence of Jesus. It doesn't deny his miracles, though it doesn't believe in him, but it doesn't deny him or his miracles. It just attributes the miracles uh, to, in saying that he's a sorcerer and a magician. And it also says that he was executed by the Romans. No doubt, Jesus lived. That much we know. Well, how about did he die? We already saw that the historians are saying that he did, and these were, uh, these, uh, these were historians that didn't believe in Jesus, but they said he died. When the disciples declared the tomb empty, Jesus' opponents didn't say, no, it's not, or you've got the wrong tomb, his body's actually over there. They had to admit that the tomb was empty. So theories developed, like the swoon theory of the 19th century. Jesus only fainted from exhaustion on the cross and later received the, uh, or revived in the cool, damp air of the, of the tomb. But does that make any sense? The Romans actually knew how to kill people. They called it crucifixion. Victims often didn't survive the floggings, never mind the crucifixion. Not even Jesus' enemies doubted that he died, hence the swoon theory or the and the stolen body theory that came about as the scriptures tell, about, uh, tell us in Matthew 28. So, did he rise from the dead? We know he lived. We know there's a lot of evidence that he died. Is there any evidence that he rose again? If our faith pivots on that, we need to know. Jesus' enemies claimed that his body was stolen, but just think about it the Romans didn't take the body. They wanted Jesus dead, and that's why they crucified him. The Jewish religious leaders didn't take the body. They wanted him to stay dead. They would have loved to parade Jesus' dead body through downtown Jerusalem, instantly killing the fast-growing Christian movement. Well, how about the disciples? They didn't take the body, as they couldn't have moved the stone without the guards noticing. There There were guards posted there. I mean, they were ready for the disciples because that's what the religious leaders were saying. It's going to get stolen. They're going to, that's what they're going to do. So they posted a guard. So they couldn't take it. That leaves us with just one option. Resurrection. But is there any evidence that he arose and that this wasn't a fabrication? Well, let's take a look at three things very quickly. First... Nobody was expecting a resurrection. Chris talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The resurrection is precisely what uh, what the disciples were not expecting. They were skeptics. They had to be convinced to believe. And when Jesus began to tell his disciples that he would die and rise again, they simply couldn't understand what he was saying. In fact, Peter scolded Jesus for even suggesting it. The last thing they imagined was that Jesus would actually die at the hands of a pagan occupying force and then rise again. That was not how how the plot was supposed to go. Crucifixion of a would-be Messiah meant he wasn't Messiah in their minds. Each disciple knew what crucifixion meant. We backed the wrong horse. Neither were the people of Jesus' day predisposed to believe in resurrection. Sometimes people think we're so sophisticated today, and in those days they were simpletons just open to any of that kind of thinking. But think about it. Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher who was highly antagonistic to Christianity, argued against the resurrection. In one of his arguments, he said that it couldn't be true because Jesus was seen by women... And we all know that women are hysterical. That's what he wrote. This is actually a very important point. (laughs) He wouldn't survive today. (laughs) At least not in my marriage. And most of his culture agreed with the assessment What that means is that if Mark and the Christians were making up the resurrection story, they certainly wouldn't have written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. Would they have? That wouldn't make any sense. Because that would discredit the whole story. The fact that they wrote it into the story when it would discredit the story has only one possible explanation, and that is that the women really were present and reported what they saw. The stone was rolled away, and the tomb was empty. Let's look at a second piece of evidence. A secret hoax wouldn't have held. Paul made a long list of people who claimed to have seen the risen Christ personally, and then he notes in 1 Corinthians 155 to 6 he says, He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than how many? 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. The huge numbers make it virtually impossible to conclude that they all had hallucinations. Paul is offering his readers the opportunity, I mean, with that phrase, most of them are still living, he's offering them an opportunity to go find one of the living and ask them. That's what he's suggesting. If you don't believe it, ask one of them. In fact, he goes on in another verse and he says, I myself saw him. If this had been a hoax, it would have had to last for decades and each of the hundreds of conspirators would have had to take a secret to the grave. And then there's a third one, the last one. I've talked about this before. But a group of cowards was transformed in a group of willing martyrs. These once cowardly men were transformed into fearless people of courage, proclaiming at cost of their lives that Jesus had risen. True, many people have died for their faith through history. Take Muslim suicide bombers. They routinely blow themselves up. Why are they willing to die like that? They sincerely believe they'll immediately go to be with God in paradise. But what the disciples did was very different from that. Suicide bombers will die for their beliefs if convinced it is truth. But if suicide bombers knew their beliefs were false, they wouldn't blow themselves up. Isn't that true? The disciples wouldn't have died knowing that Jesus was still in the grave. The only way for the disciples to fearlessly face torture and death was for them to have seen the risen Christ. They encountered him. They were astounded. They were stunned and they were shocked. They couldn't believe it. It was completely opposite of what they had expected. And for this, for this truth, they were willing to die because they had seen him. So... Why is the resurrection so important? Why is this the high point on the Christian calendar? It's not Christmas. Easter is the high point of the Christian calendar. Well, first, it ensures that my past is forgiven. Why did Jesus die? He himself gave us the answer. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? Ransom for many. That sets Jesus apart from the founder of every other major religion. Their purpose was to live, the other religions, was to live and be an example. Jesus' purpose was to die and be a sacrifice in our place, to be our substitute. Some object that this teaching... Is one more example of those primitive, bloodthirsty societies where they sacrifice the child to appease the gods. I mean, if God is really a loving God, why doesn't He just forgive and forget already? Well, here's the beginning of an answer, and we we don't have a lot of time to expand on this because I want to talk about the resurrection. But very quickly, so we don't get hung up here, all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice, all life-changing love is that. If you ever try to love, for example, someone who has needs, who is in trouble, who is emotionally wounded, it's going to cost you. When emotionally damaged people are with you, you want to look at your watch and make a graceful exit because listening to them with all their problems can be grueling and exhausting. Isn't it true? Somehow their troubles and problems transfer to you. If you're going to love them. Yet the only way they're going to start filling up emotionally is if someone loves them. And the only way to love them is to set, let yourself be emotionally drained and to let their problems and things transfer to you. And that's what Jesus did. We see that in parenting, too. I mean, this is a life principle, actually. The whole universe works like this, or the world works like this. Parenting is like that. You get married, and you, and you think, man, we're, we're so free. This is amazing. And then you have a child. <laughs> and that child starts to grow up, and they've got a mind of their own. And to develop their intellect, you have to read and read and read and read to them. And they don't want you to read the books you want to read. They want you to read their books. That's a cost, isn't it? And you got to listen, and you got to listen, and you got to listen. As a matter of fact, when they're teenagers, you got to listen to them at the most inappropriate times, like late at night when you're already fast asleep in bed. That's when they're ready. They want you to listen. It's going to cost you something. Everyone who is... Loved us in some way that changed us, that sacrificed for us. It cost them something, whether it's a parent or a mentor, or a coach, um, uh, whatever, what it, whatever it is, a friend, spouse, whatever it is. So it makes sense that God, who is more loving than you and I. when uh, when he came into the world to deal with ultimate evil, would have to make some kind of substitutionary sacrifice that would transfer our problems and our sins and everything onto him. It was going to cost him something to redeem us, as Antonia said. I like the way she said that. He's redeemed me. Even we flawed human beings know you can't just overlook evil. It can't be dealt with, removed, or healed just by saying, forget it. It must be paid for somehow, and dealing with it is always costly. God had to mete out justice for sin. There uh, there was an article years ago in the National Geographic about a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park, and some forest rangers trekked up the mountain to survey the damage and One ranger uh, found a dead bird at the base of the tree of which nothing was left but a petrified shell. And when he knocked over the bird, three tiny chicks scurried out from under the dead mother's wings. Because she was willing to die, those under the cover of her wings lived. Oh, that reminds me immediately of Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, Jesus said. How often I have longed to gather you children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He was willing. He was willing. Jesus knew that the fire of God's furious wrath against sin would come against sin, and in his love, he was willing to take the hit and shield any and all who are willing to come under the protective substitutionary sacrifice. That's amazing love. All real life changing love is costly, substitutionary sacrifice. The ancients understood the idea of the wrath of God. They understood the idea of justice, the idea of a debt, and a necessary punishment. They understood all those four things. But they had no idea that God would be the one who would come and pay it himself. They didn't understand his love. Christ's sacrifice paid for our sins. But we're talking about the resurrection today. What did the resurrection do with this in this regard? Romans chapter 4 says he was delivered to, to death for our sins and was raised to life for our what? Justification. Justification being declared righteous. He was raised for our justification. How what does that mean? Well, when Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration that, it, that, it was sat, that he was satisfied with the sacrifice. There was no more penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, all was completely paid. For example, after a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, The law has no more claim on him, and he walks out free. True? Jesus Christ came to pay the infinite penalty of our sins, and we know that he must have satisfied it fully, because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. Because the Father was satisfied that the payment had been made in full The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that no one, no one would miss it. And so there's no more guilt. That's the proof. That's the guarantee. That's why we we can sing because he rose from the dead. If he's still in the tomb, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. But we are justified. <laughs> we are justified, and we have proof. Second, it ensures that I have a present new life. The miracle of the resurrection is not merely that Christ lives bodily. Now, hang. Now, I, I want you to listen carefully. It is important that he's living bodily, but that's not just that. That's not the only miracle of the resurrection since the crucifixion but that he arose and he lives dynamically in us today that's the miracle Amen. the most distinctive mark of christians is this we are people in whom the resurrected christ dwells colossians 1:27 paul said to them the saints he's talking about god has chosen to make known among the gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is help me church which is what, church? Christ. One more time. Which is? Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Over 200 times Paul talks about us being in Christ or he in us. That, that's what's so special about the new birth. He's living in us. If he's in the grave, he's not in us. In Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter recognized that the cross had accomplished the forgiveness of sin. You know, when the Spirit came on him and he was preaching uh, to all the people that were in Jerusalem at that time, and he gets to verse 38, and he talks about the forgiveness of sin. But all of this seems to be in service of something else he wants to get at. We are to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins so that we will receive the Holy Spirit. The NLT has come the closest to capturing this idea. It says, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you have received forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that so important? Because the Trinity is one. The persons of the Trinity are one. And often within the New Testament writings, you see this this interchange going on It is the Spirit that is in us, but the Spirit is identified with Jesus Christ by Paul. He says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God, what? If the Spirit of God, what? Lives in you, but keep following. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of what? Christ. Christ. He does not belong to Christ. It's a Spirit it's the Spirit of Christ that is dwelling in us. That's why Paul could say, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then in other passages, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us not, um, uh, let's not give way to the sinful uh, desires of the sinful nature. So he's, he's talking about Christ in us, and then he talks about spirit being us, but he's talking about the same thing. There's this interchange that's taking place. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, and I will, this is interesting. Watch carefully what happens here. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Who will he give us? Spirit of truth. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. And then he says in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He's saying the exact same thing. In one moment he's saying that he is sending the Spirit, yet in uh, in the same breath he's saying that he himself will come. This isn't a little doctrine that we're talking about here. Oh no, no, it's not. This changes everything. That's why he could say he wouldn't leave them as orphans. He wouldn't leave them alone. You never have to be or feel alone. Go to him. He's already in you. And do you know why he's in you? Because he's not in the grave anymore. He is not in the grave. If he's in the grave, he can't be in you and he can't be in me. That's why he said we could know him, not just know about him. John chapter 17, verse 3, that's relationship. But this is eternal life, that they may know you, that's relationship, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's why Paul could say uh, that, that we could know his love, which is beyond knowledge. He says in Ephesians 3, 19, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's an incredible statement he's making there. He's, not, he's saying that the love that we can have from God goes beyond knowledge of love. That's what he's saying. He's saying that it's experiential. Who cares if somebody says they love you, but you can't tell? We all need love. We've, we were made to be loved. Is that true? We need to be loved. And we can be loved Because Jesus has risen and is now in us. You can experience his love. I experienced it this morning. I experienced it again when we were worshiping. And I think hundreds and thousands of you this weekend have been experiencing that. Because he's in us, he's resurrected. That's why Jesus said we could have powerful ministry in Acts 1.8. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is why Paul could say uh, that we could have victory over sin as Antonia talked about there. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. No wonder Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, I want to know who? I want to know who? Christ who's living in me and the power of his resurrection. And there's a whole host of other things that come, glorious riches that come because he is in us. Peace that passes all understanding, Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 4. And joy and so on and so forth. Over 200 times he refers to that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, my life has been transformed. It's one of the great proofs of the resurrection. It's an experiential one. I not only have those other arguments we talked about, I know he lives because he lives within my heart. Amen? Amen. And you can have him in your life too. And the third and last one. Significance of the resurrection. It ensures that I will be resurrected in the future. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the what? Say that one more time. The first fruits, that's an important word, of those who have fallen asleep. Paul used a metaphor from agriculture to indicate that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection as well. That's a metaphor. He's the first fruits of a, his resurrection is the first fruits of a harvest, then we are going to be resurrected as well. That guarantees that. His resurrection guarantees ours because his was the first fruits of the same kind of harvest. That's incredible. We're going to be resurrected. Oh, I like that idea. He waxes eloquent a little further in the chapter in verse 51, and he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be what? Changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the uh, imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that has been written will come true. Death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Amen. Amen? We will be changed because we're the first fruits, or he was the first fruits. But you know, Christians often spiritualize the resurrection effectively denying it. Did you know that about two-thirds of Christians in America who believe in the resurrection believe that they will not have physical bodies after the resurrection? They've been watching too many Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. (laughs) They should read their Bibles or go to a Bible-believing church. But a non-physical resurrection is like a sun, sunless sunrise. It's self-contradictory. Resurrection means that we will have our bodies. You can't have a resurrection without a physical body. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a, what? Living being, an ephesh, or soul, the point at which Adam became nephesh, or a soul, is when God joined his body, the dust, and spirit, breath, together. Adam was not a living human being until he had both material or physical and immaterial and, or spiritual components, both. That's when he became a fully human being. So the essence of humanity isn't just spirit, but spirit joined to the body. Your body doesn't just house the real you, it is as much a part of who you are as your spirit is. Death is an abnormal condition because it tears apart what God created and joined together. The Bible sees it as unnatural and undesirable. Listen to the declaration of Job, and I've told my wife this, that um, if I die, before Jesus returns, I want I want uh, this passage on my tombstone. because it's a declaration of faith. I know that my redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I. And not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job said, He's going to see God with his own eyes. He himself is going to see him with his own eyes. When God sent Jesus to, to die, it was for our bodies as well as our spirits. In Romans 8:23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. What's the next phrase? The redemption of our bodies. Oh, we talk a lot about the redemption of our souls and we should. But our bodies also are going to be redeemed. Aren't you glad about that? Some of you should be very thankful for that today. (laughs) The older I get, the more thankful I am about that truth. (laughs) When we die, it isn't that our real self goes to the present heaven and the fake self goes to the grave. When we die, part of us goes to the present heaven and part of us goes to the grave to wait our bodily resurrection. We will never be all that God intended us to be until body and spirit are joined again in the resurrection. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. Did you see that? He's going to bring back those who are in Christ, who have died in Christ, who have fallen asleep in him. Now just hang on to that. According to the Lord's own word we tell you, that we who are still alive who remain to the coming of the Lord... Will, not, will certainly not precede those who have, um, who, uh, who have uh, fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Amen. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Wait a minute. He just said that the dead in Christ were coming with him, and now he says the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Do you see what he's talking about? The two are going to be joined together. And then he continues, he says, And after, after, after that, we who are still alive and remain will be caught up together with them, those that have been joined together now, in the clouds to meet the Lord, and so we will, meet the, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Are you looking forward to that? Amen. There's a resurrection coming, folks. And I'm looking forward to that. We'll talk a little bit about that meeting them in the air in just a moment. If we have physical forms in the intermediate state now when, we, when people die, clearly they are not our original or ultimate bodies. Will we be recognizable? Of course we will. When you were born again, you became a new person, yet you were still the same person. You didn't come home and your parents wondered who was sitting and eating at the table. Your spouse didn't wonder who, who the stranger was lying next to them in the bed. Your dog didn't growl when you came home. You're still the same person, but transformed and renewed. That's what Antonia was saying. Different, but still the same. The good part still uh, or we, we get. At death, you and I will undergo a second change. So at the new birth, we have our first change. And Jesus comes to dwell in us, and we begin to change. We become different people. At death, a second change takes place. No more sin. Aren't you glad about that? I'm so done with it. And then at the resurrection of the bodies, we get brand new bodies on top of it. Folks, there's a lot more good things coming. The Christian life has just begun. This is just the beginning. It only gets better from here. Amen? Wow. You and I will still be you and I. Same history, same appearance. I was going to say same memory, but better memory. I know that. Same interests and same skills. And that's why Job said, I myself will see him with my own eyes. And then he goes, I and not another. Conversion doesn't mean eliminating the old, but transforming it. God is salvaging us. That word comes from the word salvation. And restoring us to our original design and why will he resurrect and redeem our bodies? Because he intends for them to live upon this redeemed earth. Now, some have been confused by what Paul said. You know, where I uh, quoted from verse 17 of First Thessalonians 4. It says, "After that, we who are still alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air." And so we will be with. And so they assume that that means that's where we live forever. But it doesn't. When a conqueror approached the city, the inhabitants would go out to meet him and usher he and his army back into the city. And that's the picture that Paul is drawing upon and his readers knew that. He will return to a renewed and redeemed, we will return to a renewed and redeemed earth. Remember that in Genesis 3, the earth was subjected to a curse? It too will be set free. Ha <laughs> there's gonna be a set free retreat for the earth. Ha <laughs> Romans 8.21 says, creation itself will be, what? Set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, he's saying the same thing as the, as the uh, children of God. How? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse uh, 3 to 13, he said, first of all, you must understand, brothers, That in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where's this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything continues as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth existed. And, then he, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these same waters, the earth of that time was deluged and destroyed. That's what it says in verse 6. Then in verse 7 it says, By the same word, so he's talking about the flood there. Then in verse 7 he says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And he continues to expand on it. What's he saying? The redemption, just like there was a flood for renewal long ago, just like God's, God's word created the earth, just like God's word brought about a flood that brought a certain amount of temporary renewal, there's going to be a fire that's going to come, and it's going to it's going to renew the earth. It's going to redeem the earth. That's what he is, uh, that is what he's saying. And then he says, he ends it up in verse 13, he says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a home or the home of righteousness. Oh my all the newspapers and news outlets of the world will be gone. There'll be brand new ones. They're only going to be able to report on good news because that's all there's going to be. It's just going to continually be good news. No more lies, no more half-truths, no more innuendos, no more deliberate misleading, just plain truth. Truth. No more corrupt governments because Jesus is going to come and rule on earth and we're going to come back with him on this renewed earth. My, and then I think about it, what we were singing, my soul to look on the one I love. And so we're going to be with the Lord forever. And Paul ends it by saying this, therefore encourage each other with these words. He said in 1 Thessalonians 4, perhaps you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ. You came here because it's Easter, maybe it's special, maybe somebody invited you, I don't know. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're here. And you need to know this, that God loves you and he's a wonderful purpose and plan for your life. But your sin and mine separated us from God. Because he's a just God and he has to mete out justice. So he loves us on the one hand and he has to be just on the other hand. And that created a real problem for God. And so he himself took the punishment for us because otherwise we would have had to take it. And his son, second person of the Trinity, came put on flesh, and took our punishment for us. That's incredibly good news. And if we, but he didn't remain there, he rose from the dead. And he wants to have fellowship and communion with you. He wants to come into your life. And he wants to remake you as he, as we heard about these who were standing on stage and how we heard from Antonia. He wants to start remaking you. And one day, he wants to raise, after you die, he wants to raise your body and redeem that too. And he wants you to come back with him and rule and reign on a righteous, wonderful planet. That's going to be so amazing. But you have to put your faith and trust in him. You have to receive him into your life. John said, but as many as received him, he gave the power or ability to become sons of God that's how you do it so I'm going to pray a short prayer and, and you can follow along with me and if that's your prayer you, you call out from your heart you ask the Lord to save you dear God thank you for bringing me here today thank you for what I for opening my eyes now and helping me to understand this thing about the deaf the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I must confess that I've pushed you out of my life, Lord. I've rebelled against you. I've tried to do life uh, on my own. I've been a rebel. But today, I confess my rebellion, and my sin against you. I thank you that you took my punishment on the cross for me. I thank you, too, that you rose from the dead and that you're willing to come and live in my life. And right now, I ask you to do just that. I submit my life to you. I ask you to be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you need to tell somebody today. Maybe you want to go through those double doors after we're closed and go into the prayer room and talk to to a, a, a prayer partner there. Who can can give you some direction? What do you do now? How do you continue to grow? Christian, are you going through a difficult time? Are you worried about the future? Are things looking darker and darker around us? Here's how Paul responded after all this. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus is risen, and that means we too will rise, and it won't be long. He deserves our highest praise, so let's worship him together with the choir now. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.